0: mercy and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. So I'd like to begin with a question. i give you two options. Which would you rather do? Would you rather be in the upper room with Jesus at 30 AD listening to him sitting around the table on the night of his death or Would you rather be in church with John? Sixty years later, listening to him preach about being around the table with Jesus and listening to him. By the time of the writing of the gospel, John had outlived every other apostle. Most of the apostles were martyred. Some of them had left behind their writings over about 30 years following Jesus' ascension into heaven. So we have Matthew, Mark, Luke. We have Paul's letters. We have Peter's letters. These writings have been in circulation for several decades. The emperor of Rome, Domitian, has done his best to try to silence this message threatening the apostles, imprisoning them, executing them, and yet their voice lives on. Now, as you come to the time of John, the last of the apostles in about 90 AD, you find him in a church in Ephesus. He's a frail old man. They've tried to kill him as well, but they didn't succeed. They've tried exiling him, but his message lived on. And now that the emperor died, he's been released and he's living out his final days in his hometown of Ephesus. They carry him in on a stretcher. He's frail and unable to walk. The people have slowly been gathering into a rather crowded house for the past hour And there in front of you is laid the Apostle John. He begins to speak. And he says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now before I get back to that question, which would you rather be, with Jesus in the upper room or John in Ephesus, We're getting close to the Christmas season now and into the new year, and we're gonna be introducing a series from the Gospel of John starting today. Many Christians are actually very fond of John in particular. I don't know what your favorite book of the Bible is, but one survey said that the number one favorite book of the Bible for Christians is John. Maybe it's the powerful I am statements where Jesus asserts, I am the resurrection and the life. Maybe it's the figurative imagery that John uses, the water of life, the bread of life, the vine and the branches, the good shepherd. All these familiar images are so fond to us in the sermons and preaching that we've heard. Or maybe it's the iconic (laughs) prologue that we're looking at today of the word in the beginning that was with God, that was God, and that became flesh and lived among us. Maybe it's your favorite passage, the gospel in a sentence, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But beyond all of these fond feelings that we might have about the Gospel of John, I think there's a common theme to all of them, which might be the reason why Christians like the Gospel of John. It's the most personal. There's a personal feel to the Gospel of John that I think is unlike Matthew and Mark and Luke. You find Jesus, who is the divine Son of God, becoming so human in John, You have chapters 13 through 17 that are outlining a conversation that Jesus had with his disciples on one evening before the day of his death. You have these personal, individual interactions, like chapter 3 with Nicodemus at night, or chapter 4 with a Samaritan woman at a well, or Pilate in chapters 18 and 19, or Mary in chapter 20 of the Resurrection, and Peter in chapter 21 on the shores of Galilee. John is personal. And should we be surprised that he's so personal? In chapter 13, he describes himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Chapter 13 is the first chapter that begins that final night. It lasts five chapters long, a conversation between Jesus and his disciples about the coming of the Holy Spirit and the meaning of his death and the hope of his resurrection. But it begins with this meal in which Jesus calls out his adversary, the devil, and says that one of the disciples is going to betray Jesus you find that all the disciples are looking around, wondering who it is that's going to betray Jesus. And Peter nudges John. He says, ask him. So John is the one to ask Jesus who will betray him. And the reason for that is John is the one closest to Jesus at the table. It's described as having the most special choice place at the right hand of Jesus. John describes himself in chapter 13 as one of his disciples whom Jesus loves who is reclining at the table at Jesus' side. Now the description is much more personal than that and the translations don't even bring full expression to it. You see the tables in eastern cultures were very low to the ground. They didn't sit on chairs. They laid on their side or sat cross-legged up to the table. They ate with their hands. And the place of most honor would be next to the right hand of the one who is the guest of honor or the host of the meal. And when John uses a word that in Greek is klopos, which doesn't mean that he was just at his side, but it means that he was in his embrace. As they're reclining around this table, John is on Jesus' shoulder. That's why he's the one to ask, Lord, who is it? The disciple whom Jesus loved has been in the embrace of Jesus himself at that last supper where he gives communion, where he tells his disciples the meaning of his death. So you can see why John's gospel would be so personal. In fact, John begins his gospel in chapter 1 with that same word, to be at the side and embrace of someone. In verse 18, chapter 1, he says, No one has ever seen God. No one. Not in his fullness, not in his glory, not for who he really is. No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son who is at the Father's klopos. He has made him known. Same word, meaning the one who has been in the Father's embrace. Some translations will say bosom or chest. To be in the Father's hug has now come down to earth to us, and then through Jesus, the human humble form of God himself John has been in the embrace of Jesus. So you can see a gospel here from an old man who's reflecting on how personal his relationship with God is to be in the embrace, not just of a man, but of God himself. That's why he begins by describing the word becoming flesh. What could be more personal than for God to become one of us? John's gospel is a personal word from God to you and to all the world. It's personal because it is about a person, not just a being, not just a higher power, not just the man upstairs, but a person who has a personality, who gets personal with his people, his disciples, and you. And it's described as the word becoming flesh. So I'd like to take the second half of the sermon to deal with that phrase, the word becoming flesh, and what it means, how personal it really is. I don't want you to get lost in too much of the history or the language of this, but we are gonna get into a little bit of the Greek because it's important. In chapter one, it says in the beginning was the logos. L-O-G-O-S is the word in Greek for word. But in the minds of the people at that time, it meant more than that. So to us in English, we think of words as something we learn in school vocabulary, sentences, grammar, sounds that we make, things that we write on paper, but for the Greeks and the Jews, it meant more than that. There are actually two different ways of looking at this verse and seeing it first through the eyes of Greeks and also through the eyes of the Jews. When I was starting to learn how to preach sermons. You learn some of it in seminary, but it doesn't end there. So as I was learning to preach sermons, I studied homiletics, which is the the ability and art to deliver a sermon. And along the way, I learned some tips. Most of it you don't really learn in books. You learn from experience. But two of the most helpful things I learned uh, came along. One was early on when someone told me to think in thoughts rather than sentences and words. So when you write out a sermon, at the beginning you kinda just try to string together sentences and you write it like a paper. And maybe you've heard a a preacher who is is very young in the ministry and you might find a sermon sounds like a paper. It's it's written out carefully, it's delivered carefully. But then this other preacher told me to think in thoughts. In other words, what the people are gonna remember are the thoughts that you are thinking and then how can you get those thoughts out into their heads and hearts. So think in thoughts rather than stringing sentences and linear thoughts. Second thing that helped me was when somebody said, well, what's your objective? When you preach a sermon, what's the goal? In other words, if you're teaching, if you're a teacher, and at the end of the day you're going to finish your class you want to make sure you've reached your objective and maybe that's a behavioral objective or maybe it's an objective of understanding when they leave that classroom or when they leave the church what do you want them to do not just what do you want to say but what do you want them to do when the sermon is over so those two things have helped me along the way to understand how the word works both in how it captures thoughts and then also in how it gives you something that changes your life. It does something for you in your heart and in your life. And in a way, these are the two ways of looking at the word. So the Greeks looked at logos as the thoughts. They had two ways of speaking of words. One was the word that's spoken Like, I'm speaking words to you, or written. And the other was the word that you think. It'd be better understood as a thought, an idea. So before you put the words out of your mouth, you have ideas in your mind. Now, the Greeks thought of these ideas as what orders all of the universe. In other words, there's ideas everywhere. Some of them are good and some are bad. But the good ones are the principles by which everything is designed. Now they came up with a whole plethora of gods to describe all the different ways that the world is ordered. You know, Zeus being the god of thunder and weather. They also thought of these gods as principles. So for instance, if they wanted to put a thought into words about beauty, and they wanted to think about beauty as the most beautiful thing they could find, they would point to things in nature, like a mountain river valley that's quiet with birds singing on a sunshine warm day. So the thought of beauty is translated into the words describing (laughs) what beauty is like in nature. Or goodness, goodness and its ultimate idea is translated into an act of sacrifice for a fellow soldier where you lay down your life for your comrade in war would be called good because it's expressing the principle of goodness and we could agree that's good. Or it's true such as math expressing a truth, one plus one equals to. Okay, so well, beauty, goodness, truth are kind of abstract principles, but we express them in language. And in math in particular, it's important then, and the Greeks were very good at math, that everything adds up, that it fits the design, and that design is the logos. We would call it something more like God but they would talk about this logos of the word in the mind of God. So before we have math, before we have sacrifice, before we have a tree in the woods, we have some kind of higher power that's thinking these things because how else did they come into being? So you have a higher power that's thinking these thoughts. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. Through him all things came into being, and without him nothing exists that we now see. For the Greeks would be very comfortable, not that they totally understood this, and common people would be as lost as most of us are talking about it, but the philosophers would would look at it that way. The logos, the word that orders all the design of math and, and nature, And goodness in our relationships with each other comes from this thought. Now, the Jews had another way of looking at the logos. For them, it was more practical. You know, the philosophers are lost, floating away in the clouds, but the Jews are very much earthy people. They got their feet on the ground. They're tramping through the wilderness. They're suffering uh, through persecution, and they're thinking of the word the way the Old Testament puts it. And in the Old Testament, the logos, the word, was about God's activity in our daily lives. Not that God, it wasn't about achieving God's abstract thoughts, it was about, what does God do in the world? So the Psalms will say, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And that means that at creation, the word was what was God's activity in the world creating everything that we see. So God said, let there be light. Why did he have to speak at all? Why didn't he just think it into being like the Greeks? But for the Jews, it was about God's spoken word. Likewise, the prophets will be said to receive the word. The word came to Jeremiah or even see the word. Isaiah saw the word of God and he was captured up into heaven. And the angels were singing, holy, holy, holy. So the word was something that was seen, it was experienced, it was felt, it was God's activity within us and around us. The miracles of Moses, the miracles of Jesus are all God's word. (coughs) Our existence is God's word to the Jews. In other words, if God didn't say let there be light, guess what would happen to all of this electricity in the sanctuary? be gone because it is still God speaking if God didn't say let us make man in our image guess what would happen to us we go back to dust but God's word is in our very molecules of our body keeping us alive making our heart pump working through our whole being from our soul to our body is all the word so now you see what John is saying when he says that the logos was God and became flesh. Which means that it's both the thoughts of God, as the Greeks would express it, and then actually the activity of God, as the Jews would see it, put together in one person. So either I've blown your mind or I've completely lost you at this point. The point we're getting at is the logos, the word made flesh is the expression of God thinking and doing the most personal things he possibly could to tell us who he is, which is why it says no one has ever seen God. Not the Greeks. And the Jews saw portions of him, but not his fullness. The only God who is at the Father's bosom, in his embrace, having been hugged by the Father, now comes to earth and says, this is God. I am God. And if you've seen me, you've seen God. So as we go through the Gospel of John, you wanna keep that in mind. Everything that Jesus is doing, everything that Jesus is saying, everywhere it's going, is meant to be a personal word from God to show you what it is to see God, to think with God, to live with God, to experience God. And now I'll get back to the first question I asked you. Would you rather be with Jesus in the upper room, around the table reclining, Eating, singing hymns, praying, listening to his teaching, or be with the old man in the stretcher, gathered in a church in Ephesus, with a bunch of people who are trying to learn what all this means. I'll say before you decide your answer, remember this: at the table, the disciples had no clue what was really going on. They didn't fully know who Jesus was. They didn't really know where this was heading. And when he died, they were lost in sorrow, despair, hopelessness. They're hiding behind closed doors. And even though they experienced all of that, there's one thing that they were still missing. One thing that John gets into in chapters 13 through 17, where Jesus teaches that extended discourse around the table, they didn't know it till later on, is the Holy Spirit. So if you were to choose 90 A.D. with John, an old man reflecting on his life and talking about love, you're going to be impacted in a much deeper way, more lasting. You have all the writings of the New Testament to go back to. You get to reflect on what it all means now through the Holy Spirit working in your community and church. And that can last a lifetime. And so I'd like to invite you in our series in John to remember that we are really living in the embrace of Jesus when we're living with John in his gospel. And that is transforming. It is how the word transforms us. In Jesus' name, amen.